to another episode of the Yale Journal Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed Index quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through a few episodes of this podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. This episode is for everyone who eats, no robots allowed, and is the first of two devoted to our June 2018 issue on nutrition and food science. I'm your host, Helen Balenson, a fourth-year graduate student in the the immunobiology program here at Yale and the co-editor-in-chief of YJBM. And I'm your co-host, Amelia Hallworth, a first-year graduate student in the microbiology program here at Yale. So, Amelia, before we start, we should clarify, we are not medical doctors. Uh, We are training to get our doctorates, but not in medicine. Um, So we do want to clarify that if you are concerned about your diet or your health, you should go talk to a medical doctor. But we are here to kind of talk about the history of diets, what diet is, how food can affect our bodies. Um, So, Amelia, why, why is it so important to look at food? Um, Well, I mean, one is, as you mentioned before, for our own personal health. Uh, As we're going to talk about a little bit today and in our next episode, it's really influencing every system in our bodies. Um, I grew up being told to drink my milk if I wanted to have strong bones uh, or to avoid osteoporosis when I get older. Uh, And I also grew up knowing that if I have a lot of salt or fats, then maybe I'll have high blood pressure and that could harm my circulatory system. Uh, One of the things I didn't grow up hearing Uh, But that we'll go into next episode in our uh, interview with Dr. Hafler is that uh, the food you eat can also influence your nervous system and your immune system. Yeah, I'm really excited to to hear that conversation. Um, And kind of if we take a step back from our own personal bodies, uh, kind of more into the nutrition agriculture aspect of this on a large like our current human population is 7.3 billion people. Um, And by 2050, it is predicted to be around 9.7 billion. Um, So a big question is like, how are we supposed to feed all of us? Um, And there's this new urgency to figure out not just how to feed everyone, but how to feed everyone in a healthy manner Um, and how to feed everyone and also maintain the health and uh, of our environment. Um, and this really is so food science isn't just a matter of our own personal health, but it really encompasses health, agriculture, environmental sciences, veterinary sciences, kind of ev- all the things. Um, so as Helen uh, was suggesting, this topic is really big and we definitely aren't going to be able to cover it all today. Uh, So we're just trying to give you an overview of some of the history behind food science and how our relationship with food has changed over time. Uh, And ideally, this will allow you to be more informed uh, going on about what you're putting into your body and why you're doing that. Yeah, so um, I think it's uh, been kind of coming more and more to light recently that human diets have dramatically shifted uh, over since human evolution started. So we shifted from hunter uh, hunting and gathering days um, and then through the cultural revolution and a shift to farming and all these things, our diets have completely changed. So um, early humans would not have been able to go through the drive through and get chicken nuggets and ketchup. So we're basically very much going from Stone Age bodies to a very much a fast food world. And this, the, um, the fact that we've... And, Sorry. Um, 
So we've basically gone from Stone Age bodies to a fast food world in a very, very quick manner. Um, Evolutionarily speaking, and so we human the human bodies actually haven't been able to evolve perfectly from the most quote unquote natural diet that we had before the agricultural evolution to the diets that we have now. So because of this, we are actually exposed to foods and diets and nutrients that we haven't necessarily been able to evolve to handle. So we actually have to be very careful about what we eat, and we need to understand how it impacts us. Um, and this is actually the idea behind the paleo diet, which we'll get into later. Uh, but it's just something to to keep in mind that the the way the very drastic shift in our diets has is something that we should keep an eye out. So before we get too into diets and dieting, uh, I want to start by clarifying what we mean by a calorie, because that word gets thrown around all the time. Uh, and there's actually two different kinds of calories. So there's a calorie with a lowercase c, and this is a scientific unit of heat. Uh, it's the amount of energy that's needed to raise one gram of water by one degree Celsius. Um, the calorie that you're all used to seeing on food labels actually has an uppercase C, and this is 1,000 lowercase c calories, or one kilocalorie. Um, in the rest of this podcast, when we're referring to calories, we're talking about uppercase c calories that are used on food and not lowercase c calories that's used in uh, science. Yeah, so the history of this really confusing term um, is pretty unclear. So several people are accredited. Um, apparently, it first appeared uh, in the middle of the 1800s. There are actually lots of ways to measure calories in food, um, but the kind of the first kind of way to go about it is measuring the heat produced by burning food in what's called a bomb calorimeter. Um, so this is kind of the estimate of what a calorie. Is. So Antoine Lavoisier was a was a chemist who made the first calori uh, calorimeter in around 1782-83, um, and it basically was a really highly insulated container to measure the heat given off by elements changing between solid, liquid, and gas phases. And this is kind of more of an upper limit. Um, our bodies do not burn all of our food to ash. Um, and there have been modifications to this number that to make it more relevant about how the body processes food. Um, but essentially, uh, the calorie went from a very scientific term to now more of a broad term, but it kind of essentially means the same thing. Yeah. Um, so in 1990, uh, Congress passed the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act, uh, which kind of standardized how calories uh, are calculated. Uh, and so now, rather than burning them in a bomb calorimeter, we calculate the number of calories that ought to be in food based off of the number of grams of fat, sugar, and protein. The calories per gram of fat, sugar, and protein are determined uh, using what's called the Atwater system. So this guy whose last name was Atwater burned a lot of proteins, carbs, and fats in a bomb calorimeter and took the average. So uh, for proteins, this number is four calories per gram. Carbs are also four calories per gram. And fats are nine calories per gram. Um, and then uh, as Helen was mentioning, there's a couple of modifications that are made. Uh, we don't digest fi dietary fiber, uh, so the grams of fibers are subtracted out from this uh, number. Um, unfortunately, the calorie labels that are on food uh, that are calculated with the system aren't necessarily super accurate. 
Uh, there was one paper by Urban et al., uh, and they compared restaurant food calorie labels uh, with actually the numbers that they got when they stuck it in a bomb calorimeter, and they found that 40% of foods were 10 calories uh, per portion higher than was stated, and 53% were 10 calories lower than was stated. Only 7% were within 10 calories of what the label actually said. Oh, man. I mean, it's good to know that there's at least some foods that have lower calories per portion. It's not entirely higher. So another thing to keep in mind is that these calories per portion are not the same number of calories that are taken in by uh, our bodies by the food, from the food. So um, when we talked uh, many episodes now, almost two years ago on our first episode series on the microbiome, we talked about how the gut microbiome actually uh, will process some of what we eat. So our gut microbiome can break down fiber and the level of which fiber is broken down or any other uh, components of our diet is broken down varies from person to person, varies from microbiome to microbiome. So if Amelia and I were about to eat the same hamburger, I would get very different intake at the end point than Amelia based on the differences in our microbiome, based on differences of our genetics and things like that. Um, And in addition, um, calories in, let's say, a stock of broccoli changes on this t- the way that you cook it. So cooking will release additional calories in food and will modify the nutrients that you can actually get out of the food. So needless to say, it's a complicated system. For sure. Um, and to make it even more complicated, oh boy. Um, <laughs> our bodies actually change how they respond to food based off of how we're perceiving it rather than Uh, necessarily just what's actually being taken in. Uh, So there was this really cool study where they fed a group of volunteers a 380-calorie milkshake, but they were told that this milkshake was either um, more calories or fewer calories than this 380 calories. Um, And they measured hormone production over time, uh, and this is a hormone called ghrelin that makes you feel hungry, and after you eat, the levels of this hormone go down. And they found that people who thought they were drinking more calories had a bigger decrease in this hormone ghrelin than the people who thought they were drinking fewer calories. So even though these people had the same exact number of calories, the way their bodies responded to it changed depending on how many calories they thought they were having. I don't know whether that means that I should start putting like little stickers on all like the the bars that I eat to actually put in like a higher calorie number just to trick my body into it. Um, Who knows? Probably not the best idea. Um, So on top of calories, there is a lot more to having a healthy diet um, than just those calories. So in addition, you need vitamins, uh, which are an organic essential micronutrients, kind of like vitamin D, vitamin B, vitamin A. Um, also, in addition, minerals. So these are chemical elements. So uh, calcium, uh, potassium, sodium, magnesium. These are the big ones um, that you need a lot of. And then in addition, there are some that you need in smaller amounts. So um, copper, zinc, iron. And then there's also essential amino acids and fatty acids. So these are uh, molecules that cannot be produced by our body, and so, but we need them to live. So we need to pr- take them in via our food. And then there's a variety of other beneficial bioactive compounds in food. Um, that, uh, and, and even on top of that, we don't really know 
everything that goes into food. Um, so for example, there's been many studies looking into the nutritional benefits of honey. Um, and when you, they do mass, spec anal mass spectrometry analysis of honey, so this is a way to try to identify exactly what is honey. Um, and they identify all the components that are in the honey, and then they try to remake it in the lab. They don't get honey. They get a mixture of random compounds. So there is something in addition to exactly what's there that gives the nutritional help, which we don't understand yet. So That's really crazy. Um, but one of the things that we do know pretty well is that having too much or too little of any of these nutrients is not very good for you uh, and can lead to some pretty nasty metabolic diseases. Um, and if these diseases are something you'd like to know more about, uh, we have one of the papers in our issue by Agilon uh, et al. And this goes into a lot more detail about how these nutrients are actually affecting our body and what can go wrong if you're getting too much or not enough. Yeah, so maybe we should take some time to talk about what a good diet is. Um, I know that that's a question that is very often Googled, uh, what should, what's the best diet? What should I eat? Things like that. Um, and there's a lot of different ideas. And we're going to go into some that make some sense and some that are a bit wonky. Um, but And all of these are uh, especially popular when losing weight is concerned. Um, so I just want to take a moment and talk about the word diet because I think we've been throwing it around in two basic meanings, which I think have the main two meanings. Um, the first being diet as in specifically what we eat. Uh, and then in addition, there's a diet, which is something of how you change how you eat, if that makes sense. So for example, um, my current diet is predominantly pizza and tea, but I need to go on a diet and eat less fast food. Um, so, but the word diet, we don't really, um, we know that it was actually the word diet uh, was invented in ancient Greece. So it's in, in its original context, diaita, oh man, my Greek is close to zero. Um, yeah, it wasn't solely on eating, uh, it wasn't focused on eating particular foods or certain foods to achieve weight loss, um, as it's predominantly known today. It was actually meant to represent the entirety, uh, an entire lifestyle. So this encompassed food and drink and your exercise plan and your lifestyle and things like that. Um, so uh, there's a lot of um, these ancient Greeks, which we'll go into a little bit about what they recommended eating, um, had fairly sensible advice, um, although the weird thing that they did recommend was running around naked and regularly vomiting, um, which, you know, to each his own. Yeah. Um, I guess when clothes are really expensive, I guess you wouldn't want to go exercising in them, um, <laughs> but I, I kind of prefer exercising with clothes on myself. Um, so people have historically eaten and currently eat a lot of diets, and there are a lot of different ideas about what makes a good diet. Um, so when the first fossils of our human ancestors in Africa were discovered uh, by Raymond Dart uh, back in uh, 1924, uh, this, this popularized sort of the image in our culture of our ancestors hunting meat on the African savanna. Uh, and so uh, the person who discovered these fossils uh, Dr. Dart, he described these humans as, uh, quote, carnivorous, 
creatures that seized living quarries by violence, battered them to death, slaking their ravenous thirst with the hot blood of victims and greedily devouring livid, writhing flesh. Um, which is which is one idea for a potential diet you could eat of livid, writhing flesh. Um, but eating meat is thought to be really important um, for the evolution of our ancestors' larger brains because it has um, more energy than plants are. Uh, so by starting to eat more calorie-dense meat rather than plants, um, it's possible that Homo erectus got enough energy to fuel a bigger brain. Uh, so I guess I shouldn't be knocking meat eating too much. <laughs> Are you a vegetarian? I am, yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's uh, vegetarianism is coming back in full swing. So there's always this kind of like contestion between like, do we order pepperoni on that pizza? Um, I don't know. I'm trying to be more of a vegetarian these days. Uh, it, mm. It's slow, but it's working. <laughs> Um, so uh, in our issue uh, in June, um, there's another review by Vanamala. There's a review by Vanamala um, about the tally diet, which is an ancient Indian diet. So in this diet, uh, they have rice or bread that's served with several smaller dishes, such as legumes, yogurts, spiced vegetables, um, and the import the importance lied in a variety of different flavors. So. Um, various different spices, different foods, all in one dish. And this uh, allowed for the incorporation of a variety of micronutrients because you're going to get different nutrients from different foods. Um, And this review suggests that this diet may have had anti-inflammatory effects that prevented diseases because of this variety. It also just made me really, really hungry. In 1614, uh, an Italian living in England, Giacomo Castrovestro, uh, is, uh, wrote this book, The Fruits, Herbs, and Vegetables of Italy, which is uh, touting the benefits of a produce-rich diet. Uh, the British were not super convinced by this, uh, which I think is kind of funny. So in 1753, about 150 years later, uh, was the first discovery of vitamins. Uh, James Lind discovered that fruit can reverse scurvy, uh, but he doesn't actually realize the importance of his work, and it's another 40 years before lemons start getting given to the British sailors. Uh, And this actually contributed to history. This is a large reason reason why the British were so dominant uh, on the seas. So I guess a, a lemon a day keeps the enemies away? I guess so. And and this discovery of vitamins led to an uh, increase in convenience foods and fortified foods that kind of still persist today. Uh, I know I have a gummy vitamin every day. And then in 1864, uh, a, there's a book published called A Letter on Corpulence by William Banning. Uh, and this is actually likely the first diet book that was ever published. Um, he was... Uh, he wrote about his success of weight loss after replacing uh, this excessive intake of bread, sugar, and potatoes with a diet of mostly meat, fish, and vegetables. Um, and then in 1930s, uh, more entertainingly, uh, some Hollywood starlets start a diet called the Hollywood Diet, and this is half a grapefruit before every meal, coupled with uh, some other restrictions to limit calories. Yeah, Banting was interesting. That letter uh, started off with, uh, of all the parasites that affect humanity, I do not know of, nor can I imagine, any more distressing than that of obesity. So I think uh, that kind of image is really intense to start a diet book. Um, but so in a, in addition to um, 
starlets and past nutritionists and dietitians, uh, the government has a lot to say about dieting. Um, and there are a variety of different dietary guidelines that have been imposed in lots of countries. So 91 of 195 countries around the world have national dietary guidelines, uh, which I was very surprised about. But but in both ways. First, I was like, oh, that seems like a lot. Then I realized that it's less than half of the nations. Um, so but let's for simplicity, let's focus on the U.S. and the guidelines that are put forth in the U.S. because we are recording in the U.S. Um, so the USDA uh, has a variety of nutritional guidelines, which have which are basically over 100 years of nutritional advice. Um, and these guidelines are updated over time to adopt new scientific findings or new public health marketing techniques. Um, and we'll get into the marketing aspect of this a little bit later. Um, and over time, they've described from four to 11 different food groups, um, and various guides have been criticized as not being accurately representing scientific information, um, and they're highly criticized for being overly influenced by the agricultural industries that the USDA promotes. Yeah. Uh, so the first nutrition guidelines were not published by the government at all. Uh, the first one was in a farmer's bullet uh, by Dr. Wilbur Atwater. Uh, and his, his publication in 1904 was called The Principles of Nutrition and Nutritive Virtue of Food. And he advocated vi variety, proportionality, and moderation. Uh, he says to measure calories. And he promotes an efficient, affordable diet that focuses on nutrient-rich foods and less fat, sugar, and starch. Um, and it's important to keep in mind, this information actually preceded the discovery of vitamins um, that were really starting to get ramped up in 1910. Um, and I was actually really surprised when reading this about how similar that is about to what we're getting uh, suggested today. Yeah, I wonder if it's that we haven't learned or they got it right the first time around and we just need to keep rediscovering that it's the right way to go about it. Um, so a new guide that was published uh, 12 years after um, Dr. Atwood's was published by the nutritionist Caroline Hunt, which was called Food for Young People. Uh, it categorized food into milk and meat, cereals, vegetables and fruits, fats and fatty foods, and sugars and sugary foods. Um, and in, so she basically was the first one to separate out foods into groups. Um, and then in... Uh, in her 1917 publication, How to Select Food, uh, she promoted these five food groups to adults. And these guidelines remained in place uh, through the 1920s. I think it's really cool that she started off um, really thinking about children's health at first and then being like, oh, wait, I think adults should eat healthy as well. <laughs> um, so um, while this is happening and right afterwards in popular culture, uh, this is actually when the uh, the Hollywood starlets were starting to do their grapefruit diet. Um, so there's there's this really interesting disconnect between what was actually being suggested and what people are actually eating that I think persists to today. In 1933, um, shortly after this diet uh, became popular, uh, the USDA uh, first introduced food plans at four different cost levels, uh, and this was in response to the Great Depression. So this was the first time that the government uh, introduced um, diet advice or food plans. Uh, and they also created 
uh, the first recommended dietary allowances uh, seven years later in 1941. Uh, and this listed specific intakes for calories, protein, iron, calcium, and vitamins A, B1, B2, B3, C, and D. So as the Great Depression influenced the government to produce these food plans at different cost points, World War II uh, kind of pushed the USDA to introduce a nutritional guide promoting the what's called the Basic 7 in 1943. So the Basic 7 food groups um, are uh, were put in place to help maintain nutritional standards under wartime food rationing. So there's a variety of different groups, including uh, green and yellow vegetables, um, raw, cooked, or frozen, uh, oranges, tomatoes, and grapefruit. Um, this also included raw cabbage, uh, We'll get back to the cabbage in a little bit. Um, also included were potatoes, meat and milk products, meat, poultry, fish, and eggs, uh, bread, flour, and cereals, and butter or fortified margarine. Um, and it, importantly, the fortified margarine had Id- added vitamin A. Um, so I found an old poster from the 40s that promoted this basic seven food groups. And I thought it was really funny because on the poster it said, and in addition to the basic seven food groups, eat any other foods you want, which I think sounds like the greatest diet I've ever heard of. I like that idea. That would be good. Um, So shortly after this, while this was going on, uh, there was also this crash diet that was uh, created uh, as a weight loss remedy. And this diet was eat unlimited cabbage soup for a week. Uh, but that was all you ate. Um, this this diet uh, was really interesting in that it caught on, even though it didn't really actually uh, keep off the pounds. And also it can be flatulence inducing. Not so pleasant. Uh, so... After the war and from the 50s to the 90s, the USDA kind of switched from the basic seven to the basic four, simplifying things. Uh, so the four groups were vegetables and fruits, um, mostly as sources of vitamin C and A and for fiber. Uh, second food group was milk. So it, this included a variety, for a variety of reasons. Um, but apparently cheese, ice cream, and ice milk where it's okay to replace those for room temperature milk. Uh, that was emphasized. Um, and teens needed more servings than adults. So uh, I thought that was interesting. Uh, and then third group was meat. Um, and this included poultry, fish, and eggs. And somehow dry beans and dry peas were also considered meat, at least in this uh, classification system. And then the fourth group was cereals and breads. Um, and so interestingly, the minimum daily servings uh, of cereals and breads actually doubled from the basic seven, reflecting the end of the war and the end of wartime rations. Um, and... Uh, there was a fair amount of backlash to these basic four um, due to the agricultural industry not being too pleased with the lower amount of food that was being uh, recommended. Um, and so what at this point, the government actually united the USDA and the HHS uh, to create the first combined 1980 dietary guidelines for Americans, uh, which recommended seven ways to have a good diet um, to, one, eat a variety of foods, two, maintain an ideal weight, three, avoid too much fat, four, eat foods with adequate starch and fiber, five, avoid too much sugar, six, avoid too much sodium, and seven, if you drink alcohol, do so in other moderations. 
yeah, so essentially the same recommendations that we have today. During this time period, uh, the basic four were pretty much omnipresent in nutrition education in the U.S. Um, however, that didn't stop people from trying all sorts of other weird diets, uh, as as the theme goes. Uh, so in the 1960s, uh, an American physiologist living in Italy published the first scientific study on the Mediterranean way of eating, uh, which has been a thing ever since. Uh, in the 1970s, this grapefruit diet of half a grapefruit a day experienced a resurgence in popularity after it's mistakenly associated with the Mayo Clinic. I'm sure they're not too pleased with, with that one. I'm sure. Um, in, in 1972, Dr. Robert Atkins published his book, Diet Revolution, in which he claims that avoiding carbs will peel off pounds uh, and lower the risk of metabolic syndromes, diabetes, and high blood pressure. Uh, and so this really kicked off the Atkins diet, uh, which then had a revival in the 1990s when he published a second book. In 1975, The Stone Age Diet, a book uh, introduces modern man to his dietary history. So this was essentially the start of the paleo diet's insurgence into society. Um, and then in, in 1975, a Miami doctor, uh, Dr. Siegel, introduces a specially formulated diet, cookie. Uh, so his patients eat six to nine cookies a day, followed by sensible meals. Um, I would be okay with a diet that has me eat six to nine cookies a day. But honestly, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical that that would work pretty well. I wonder how those cookies taste. They can't all be like snickerdoodles, can they? I don't know. If it's like a really healthy cookie, let's say that it's basically a salad and a cookie. Is that still a cookie? I don't know if I would classify a healthy cookie as a cookie. I, I don't know. Takes away from the excitement of the word for me. Um, yeah, so in 1992... Uh, the USDA kind of realized that just putting out a series of guidelines isn't the best way to educate the American people as to what to eat, what's healthy and what's not. And so they attempted to express the recommended servings of each food group based on an image. And this image was the famous food guide pyramid. So this was the the pyramid in which there were uh, six different food groups that were kind of aligned and blocked off in a pyramid where the biggest section at the bottom was the servings that you needed the most of. So this was bread, cereal, rice, and pasta. And then this kind of narrowed into a small apex that had the sparring amounts of fats, oils, and sweets that we need. And in between, there were different sized blocks for vegetables, fruits, uh, dairy products, and uh, protein. Um, and so this There is a modified pyramid that was proposed to adults over 70, um, and this was actually the first food chart that was suggested by the USDA. Um, and interestingly, when it was very first proposed, they actually wanted fruits and vegetables to be the biggest group at the base of that pyramid and not breads. However... That thought was overturned at the hand of the special interests in the grain, meat, and dairy industries, all of which were heavily subsidized by the USDA. And so that is why the pyramid switched and fruits and vegetables are only uh, the second highest recommended foods after bread and cereal, um, which I find a little bit frustrating. Um, but, you know, it's history. Um, 
so in in 2003, uh, the South Beach Diet was created, um, possibly in in response to this, uh, and that that combined the Atkins and Mediterranean diets to try to make something that was maybe a bit healthier and more uh, pleasing for people. Yeah, I'm actually the di- the Mediterranean diet sounds so delicious, just like fish and wine. I don't know if the wine's actually included. I doubt it is. But how I imagine it is you have like a beautiful fresh caught fish with like a caprizi salad um, and some wine, which sounds lovely. Um, So if we go back to this pyramid, it actually was changed and replaced in 2005. Um, And basically it just kind of changed up its image. So instead of having uh, hierarchical levels, it was replaced with vertical wedges. So this was supposed to represent that all foods should be uh, considered important, but having different amounts. Um, And there was an, they left kind of this unmarked white tip at this new pyramid that didn't have any colors representing food groups. And this was supposed to be uh, left for candy, alcohol, and any additional food to kind of encourage people uh, that you can indulge and you can kind of have the foods that you're quote unquote not supposed to eat because they're good, delicious. Actually now, and I didn't realize this because the last time I learned about the the pyramid, uh, the food pyramid was in school, but now it's switched to my plate. So the pyramid was replaced in 2011 by a plate, and this plate actually has uh, it's divided into different the different food groups, um, which marked 20 years of the pyramid being over. Which I don't know, it's kind of a staple of my childhood that's now gone. R.I.P. Pyramid. <laughs> so after the uh, unveiling of the my plate. Um, there has been additional diet fads. Uh, in 2007, the cookie diet came back. Uh, he launched cookiediet.com, and rival cookie-based diets have followed. Uh, so there's some drama in the cookie diet world. Um, in the 2010s, uh, the paleo diet was uh, repackaged uh, from the Stone Age diet before. And this is a supposedly ancient meal plan of meat, eggs, greens, fruits, uh, and zero-packaged foods. And this diet also doesn't include dairy, beans, or cereal grains because these were introduced after cooking in agriculture. Um, So the idea is that this diet is based on the hunter-gatherers and therefore it's the most quote-unquote natural diet for humans. Um, In in other news, uh, in 2012, Marie Claire UK advocates the cabbage soup diet. It's coming back uh, as a, quote, super cheap and a great fix for a special event. Oh, my God. (laughs) A special (laughs) event. This cabbage soup diet, I just, I can't get enough of it. I kind of want to try it and see, like, if it's actually as bad as it sounds. I feel like after your second bowl of cabbage soup, you might not. You might go back on those words. (laughs) Yeah, I might. Um, And then the Mediterranean diet in 2013, which is lean meats, produce, olive oil, nuts, wine, and whole grains. So probably not that different from your idea of fish and a salad. Uh, This was found to reduce the chance of heart attacks, strokes, and death by heart disease by 30%. Uh, So that's that's a pretty big uh, decrease. And wine is included in that. I'm sure it's it's not excessive amounts of wine, but just, you know, a little goes a long way. 
So since the 1980 uh, Dietary Guidelines for Americans, um, so this is a publication of the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, the DHHS. So these guidelines are actually updated every five years, um, which I think is pretty, um, which I think is really great because it allows for the incorporation of new scientific findings. Um, and essentially, it's it's per, it's predominantly hasn't had the biggest influence on American diets. Um, so although there has been a lot of debate on what should be left in, what should be taken out. So for example, um, the uh, there's been a lot of focus on whether cutting fat should become still stay a really big focus of these groups. Um, and another thing is like whether cholesterol is still considered a nutrient of concern. Um, the interesting thing is like when you uh, representatives from the Center of for Natural uh, Nutrition Policy and Promotion at the USDA, they've been quoted to say, unfortunately, what has remained constant over the years is that Americans have not followed dietary guideline recommendations. Um, so as much work has been that has been put in to creating these guidelines and trying to put together a system uh, that allows people to know what's healthy for them and what's not, Americans don't really tend to respond well to these guidelines and don't tend to respond. So in our next episode, when talking to David Hafler, um, he will be touching hopefully on this and how to really change the diets of people. Um, although I think less fast food restaurants may, may be helpful. Um, there, In addition, there's tons of new additions that come in. Um, and what I found interesting is that every couple years, there's new recommendations that all basically say, eat more fruits and vegetables. So this is a recommendation that has been coming in for many, many years. So apparently fruits and vegetables are important, and we still haven't figured that out yet as a, as a society. Um, so actually, if you uh, the the committee since 2015 has really started factoring in environmental sustainability for the first time in its recommendations, which I think is a wonderful thing that we really do need to start thinking about because, as I mentioned earlier, our population is growing, which means the amount of food we need also needs to grow more, um, and we really need to start considering whether growing this much food is environmentally sustainable or how we can grow a lot of food while also being environmentally sustainable. So in 2015, they found that a healthy diet should comprise of a higher plant-based foods and lower animal-based foods, and that plant-based diets are better for the environment than those based on meat and dairy. Um, and actually, if you're interested in how our agricultural system impacts uh, sustainability, we actually have a review on this topic uh, in our issue by Morawicki and Gonzalez. Um, and I think that was something that I think everyone should be interested in learning more about. Um, and in addition, uh, and we have another uh, manuscript that uh, talks about the importance of considering the environmental impact. Um, and this manuscript is by 
Anandaba et al., and it focuses on the risks of toxins produced in algal blooms. So our human behaviors, uh, such as over-fertilizing fields and climate change, are increasing the severity of algal blooms um, in water. And these the crops that are grown with food that has algae in it are more likely to be contaminated with al- toxins that are produced by algae. Um, and frustratingly, increased globalization allows for intoxicated products to be more widespread because there's more of these products. Um, and I think this is this highlights the importance of basic research. So researchers that are looking and studying uh, the biochemistry and lifestyle of algae, it might seem like, oh, why are they studying these small organisms? But actually, it's impacting our everyday life and human health globally. So we talked a little bit before about some of the controversy that's surrounding uh, the guidelines and uh, how the food industry is lobbying in response to those guidelines. Um, and, And this is happening really anytime something happens that might affect sales. So one of the papers in our issue by Arise et al., this is summarizing the history of sugar beverage sales like soda uh, and just a history of industry pushback to their regulation. Um, Because, I mean, I know I've seen a couple of times there have been proposals to tax them and then there's all kinds of uh, blowback against that. So we talked a lot about how food and diet recommendations came to be, but why do we care anyway? Why do you need a good diet? So uh, a lot of people know that um, bad diet can lead to diseases like obesity or diabetes or heart attacks, Um, but diet can also affect diseases that you wouldn't necessarily consider. Um, And and modern medicine um, can also use nutrition to cure diseases, Uh, so things like phenylketonuria, where the person uh, is not able to break down one amino acid, phenylalanine. This can lead to it, the phenylalanine accumulating in the brain and leading to intellectual disabilities. Uh, but this can actually be completely prevented by uh, only feeding uh, these people um, foods that don't contain phenylalanine. So if you look at a nutrition label really carefully, a lot of them will say caution contains phenylalanine, and that's actually why. Um, beyond that, nutrition can cure or help regulate diseases like uh, diabetes, or it can. Uh, it's important for people with food intolerance. So we need to know more about our nutrition in order to improve our health. And there's a lot of really interesting research happening about nutrition, some of which is in our issue. Yeah, and uh, in our in our next episode, Amelia is going to be talking with Dr. David Hafler, who will be talking about the influence of diet and nutrition on uh, risk of autoimmunity, um, which I think will be a really awesome conversation. I look forward to it. Um, so I guess this whole episode, it's basically just we're talking about a Goldilocks situation where too much of something, too little of something is never the best idea. Um, but you really it's again, it seems so personal, though. So like my genetics, my microbiome impacts what a healthy diet is for me and the same for you. And uh, again, we're not doctors. This is not medical advice. Um, and if you're going if you want to improve on your diet as a result of listening to this, uh, 
read about the government's food guidelines. Uh, they do put a lot of effort into it. Um, and these are, but these are based on an entire body of literature. And um, not only is one study not a good basis for making decisions. So if you read one manuscript about a certain diet affecting a group of people, just know that that's one study. But looking at the entire body of literature is really critical. And also taking consideration your uh, personal health and your your personal body as well. Um, so as an intro to our next episode, where we're going to interview Dr. Hafler, uh, let's talk about a manuscript that we're publishing about how food is affecting our bodies. Uh, and this is by Donovan et al. Um, and so some background is this paper is looking at how your diet might affect breast cancer uh, risk. Our bodies make this receptor called an aryl hydrocarbon receptor. Uh, and this receptor responds to a variety of different compounds in our food, um, but it also responds to compounds that are made by breast cancer and that promote the breast cancer's growth. So the authors of this paper, Donovan et al., are um, proposing that if we eat foods that um, inhibit this receptor from being um, activated by breast cancer, then that might prevent breast cancer from spreading. So it's kind of like we should eat a lot more foods that bind to this receptor so that all the receptors are blocked with the nutritional good food that we're eating as opposed to the cancerous signals that are saying to grow. Yeah, that's the, that's the idea. It's it's actually a little bit more complicated than that because... As science always is. As science always is. Um, because different specific compounds will either activate or inactivate the receptor. Mm -hmm. So the idea is eat foods that contain compounds that inactivate the receptor so that way the breast cancer can't activate the receptor. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, so th this this particular compound we're talking about is called a flavone, and these flavones are in a lot of different fruits and veggies like broccoli, lettuce, spinach, grapefruit, lemons, limes, oranges, and apples. So maybe the grapefruit diet did have something to it. Maybe. Um, and in this paper, they're reviewing the effect of um, other studies where they looked at cancer risk in eating some of these uh, fruits and vegetables. Um, and they found really that it's kind of a wide range. Some of these studies they're looking at saw no effect. Some saw a small protective effect. Um, but none of these studies were really designed to look for this. So it's not 100% clear necessarily how much of this flavone compound is getting consumed. Uh, so they're basically using this, uh, this paper to argue that this is something that would be worth looking into more and doing some more research to specifically test this. Um, and with that, it's time to wrap up. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Join us next month for our second podcast on nutrition and food science, where Neil and I will be interviewing Dr. David Hafler, a professor, a professor in neurology and immunology here at Yale. Uh, we'd like to thank the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and our podcast. Uh, thanks to the Yale Broadcast Center for, for help with making this podcast come to life. Uh, thank you to our entire YJBM editorial board. Um, and if you'd like more information on the Yale Journal of Biology Medicine or a podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu slash YJBM. Um, and be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. We're actually completely open access. So even if you're not an academic or don't have uh, access to a lot of journals, we're completely free to read. And if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at yjbm at yale.edu. We also have a Twitter. We are at the YJBM. 
We'd love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing or tweeting us. Uh, and if you enjoyed our podcast, please share us on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. See you next month for the next installment of the YJBM Podcast.